13. Again, that is Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. And specifically tonight, we are going to talk about growing in Christ-likeness. Specifically, the urgency of growing in Christ-likeness. So if your Bible is open, let's read together Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 11. Do this knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believe, believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this text. Thank you for the urgency of this text, Lord. Thank you that you've given us your word to guide us and direct us. And we pray for our time together tonight that it be edifying, that we would enhance our understanding of scripture, Lord, that we would know more about you and what you would have us do with our lives, Lord. Help us to worship you, to honor you, and help us to grow in understanding of our glorious Father and his Son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I've read this text and studied this text over the last week or so, I've concluded that the main idea of this text is this. In light of the present time that we live in, live for Christ. Again, in the light of the present time, live for Christ. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look into this text in order to gain a more thorough understanding of this main idea. First, as you notice right away in verse 11, you'll notice Paul's tone. You notice that it's urgent. You notice that he says, do this. Paul is urgently reminding sleepy believers that it's time to wake up. Whether it's 2,000 years ago or even now, there is real danger that Christians can fall into a temporary state of spiritual sleepiness. Have you been there? And so what Paul is talking about here is spiritual sleepiness, a lack of responsiveness to the things of God, and an inactivity toward godly pursuits. A small season where spiritual awareness has weakened, or said another way, your progressive sanctification has stalled. Well, you might be asking, how does this happen? When do we become spiritual sleepy? How do we lose focus? Well, there are many, many reasons why that we lose focus, and we can't cover all those reasons tonight. We will cover four very quickly, but it's important for us to understand that underneath all of these reasons is sin and the impacts of sin on our life. But one reason in particular that we become spiritually sleepy at times is because of the competing affections of the world. Agreed? At times, our hearts may unknowingly drift towards self and towards the world. For a moment or for a season, 
Something other than God takes over the throne of our hearts. This thing can be a job. It can be a material thing. It could be a person. It could be your spouse. It could be your child. It could be comfort. It could be pleasure. It could be a title. It could be uh, entertainment. The approval of others. Many different things at times in our lives can sit on the throne of our hearts that are not God. Our hearts can wane, they can drift, and when we lose focus on God, some people call this the gospel drift. You're drifting and you don't know it. I'm sure many of us have been there at one point or another. Um, John Calvin recognized this danger. He called the heart an idol factory. Once you put one idol away, guess what happens? Another one comes up. And once you put that one away, guess what happens? Another one comes up. Um, There are continuously things that are competing for the affections of our hearts. And that's why why Proverbs 4.23 is so important. This is what Proverbs 4.23 says. It says this, watch over your heart with all diligence. If you're in your Bibles, I encourage you, if you are in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, circle that word all. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Like I said earlier, there are ongoing idols that are continuously competing for the affections of our heart. And that's why we need each other. Agreed? To help us notice these things. That's why we need the church. That's why we need God's guidance from his inspired word. And that's why we need guidance and direction from the Holy Spirit. So one particular thing that can make us spiritually sleepy is competing affections of the heart. Another thing that can cause us as believers to become sleepy is our circumstances. Amen? Circumstances sometimes are what? Overwhelming. And when circumstances are overwhelming, what what happens at times is we look at our circumstances and we don't look at... God. And this is what happened in the Old Testament over and over and over again. The Israelites continuously throughout the Old Testament lose focus on God and focus squarely on their circumstances. They focus on things like giants. Not going to lie. I'm going to focus on that one. Giants are pretty big, right? But they focused on giants and not on God. God is immensely more powerful than giants. Amen? So they focused on giants, they focused on water, they focused on food, they focused on comfort. And, and this happens to us sometimes, is they focus on leadership. Leadership that they don't like. And they are consumed with that, opposed to fully trusting God. They're trusting or looking in their circumstance. This can can happen to us at times. Um, Agreed? So the Israelites were doing this, and if we're honest with ourselves, our our hearts can drift at times because of the circumstances that we are focusing on. But what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 13 is, now is not the time for that. Now is not the time to lose focus. Stay focused, stay focused on what God would have you to do, because now is not the time to be distracted. Agreed? Also... Another thing, a third thing that can cause us to become spiritually sleepy at times, and this applies to probably many, many Americans, 
moms, fathers, business people, practically everybody, another thing that can make us sleepy spiritually sometimes is busyness. Busyness we see with Martha and Mary. Martha was distracted by what? The unnecessary things of life. So much so she was missing out the most important thing, which was listening and worshiping Jesus. Martha's unnecessary busyness caused her to lose focus on Christ. Lastly, again, we could be here all night pointing out things that cause us to become spiritually sleepy. But number four is this. One thing that causes, the fourth thing that causes spiritual sleepiness is man-centered distractions. Distractions. Great question to ask yourself is this. Do I have unhealthy habits that are contributing to unproductive busyness, resulting in a lack of focus on Christ? I came across an interesting article this week from ABC News, um, and it was published about a year ago. And they were going over, the, the article included how much time people spend on electronic devices, specifically teens. And let me quote from this article, and remember the idea here is being distracted. And I think we all can agree that we're distracted by these devices, agreed? So specifically, this is what the article said, and I quote, teens, if you have kids, grandkids, nieces, or nephews, teens spend an average of seven hours and 22 minutes on their phones a day. It's like a full-time job. And tweens, and if you're not familiar with what a tween is, a tween is kids that are ages 8 to 12. Um, they're not far behind. They spend at least four hours and 44 minutes daily on their devices, according to a new report by Common Sense Media, which is a not-for-profit organization. But also, the article continues. It says, this amount of screen time, seven and a half hours, does not include time spent on schoolwork, according to the report. When figuring in these activities, such as reading books and listening to music, the numbers jump to nine hours and 49 minutes for teens and five hours and 54 minutes for tweens. And I'm willing to say that adults probably are not far behind. So again, in light of these statistics, in light of the reality that we live in, a great question to ask ourselves is this. Are there unproductive habits that I have that are contributing to me becoming sleepy? Are there habits that are contributing to my lack of godly focus? This could be television, media, a hobby. So as we begin to unpack this verse, as we begin to unpack Romans chapter 13, it's important for us to be aware that there are many things that contribute to sleepiness. Number one is competing affections, our circumstances, busyness, man-centered distractions. But in light of the times that we are living in, Paul is urgently telling us it is time to wake up. Now is not the time to be sleepy. Secondly, as you look at this text, notice that Paul is urging believers to wake up because of the times, you see that word, the times that we are living in. 
The word here for time is not the, the time that we use for chronological time, but it's time used to describe an error or an age or an extensive period of time. You with me? And so we see throughout the New Testament, the New Testament teaches us that we live in an error or a time where Jesus is coming back soon. And the crowd says, amen. So look at what Jesus says specifically about his return in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7 says this, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. This is what Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my, re and my reward is with me to reward each one as his work deserves. And we love this next verse. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We live in an era where Jesus is coming back soon. Since he is coming back soon, I want to be alert. I do not want to be sleepy. Why? Because I love him, and so do you. Do you want to be alert when he comes back? Let's not be spiritually sleepy. Also, it's important to note that the early church lived in great anticipation of Christ's return. On a side note, has anyone thought about Christ's return lately? Yeah, just turn on the news and you're like, oh my goodness, when's Jesus coming? But also, this expectancy of Jesus returning was also held by the early apostles. And we see this with Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. And this is what Peter says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious. Be watchful. Be alert. Don't be distracted. Be working towards ministering to others. Be intentional about sharing the gospel with the lost. Apostle John says something very similar in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says this, little children, it is the last hour. Last hour. Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, very well-known verse. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As the day drawing near, as the Lord's return is around the corner. Also, we see in James chapter 5, uh, verses 7 and 8, this is what James says. Therefore, be patient, brother, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the uh, precious um, produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. And I really like this verse in James because James is reminding us not to have a sense of sinful anxiousness while we reflect on the imminent return of Christ. Rather, be alert while having confidence in the Lord and his coming. His will will be done. Trust his sovereign plan, but as we trust his sovereign plan, be alert while waiting upon his return. 
But if you talk about the return and the imminent return of Christ, oftentimes you will get that guy who said, well, if Jesus is coming back, he would have come back by now. Anyone have that guy? Just me. Okay, so there is that guy, and there is that guy in the early church. And to people who say such things, I would like to point out two facts or just two observations. Number one is this. And responding to that guy, tell them, number one, that a thousand years is like a blink of an eye to our eternal and all-powerful God. Grateful for that. Time's no big deal for him. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, But do not let this one fact, do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. At times, God is uncomprehensible. Isn't he incomprehensible? I can't fathom the vastness of God that a thousand years is like one day. That's our eternal God. But also to the person who's saying, where's Jesus 2,000 years later? Remind that person that God's timing is immensely gracious. Immensely gracious. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says this, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In this passage, the you is God's children, the elect. And I am so grateful that Jesus didn't come back 20 years ago. Because if he would have came back 20 years ago, it would not have been good for Bobby Caliendo. It would have been hell for eternity. But what? God is patient with those he loved. God has been immensely and is continuously being patient with me and has been patient with me and is patient with you and will continue to do so in the future. But as we go back to this text here, let's look as it, as it relates to time specifically. Notice in verse 11 that says, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The time of salvation is nearer. At first glance, that might sound a little confusing. I've been a believer, a Christian. God saved me about 17 years ago. And since the time I was saved, I believed and was taught that the penalty of our sins were absolutely dealt with at the point of conversion. And that is absolutely correct. Amen? And the Bible tells us at the moment of conversion, we are sanctified. We are set apart, and we are justified before God. And this concept is clearly taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. And this is a great verse. Pastor Scott might be upset I'm stealing his thunder. As you know, he's in a series in 1 Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, great verse. Such were some of you. And if you don't know the context of that verse, before this verse, Paul is saying you all stink at one point. You did everything that was vile. But even though you did everything that was vile, and that might include some of your vile friends, guess what? God has the ability to save them as well. So as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, he says, Such were some of you, you all used to stink really, really bad, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, past tense. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. At conversion... We were set apart by God. We were sanctified. But also notice in this verse it says we were washed, 
we were sanctified and we were justified. And if you're here for the first time and you don't know much about justification, let me just explain a little bit real quick for you. Justification is more of a, a legal act. And this is um, more so a definition of justification. And if you're a believer in this room, just marvel at this definition. It's just a great reminder. Um, for those who believed or believe, this is what happens at your point of conversion. Justification is a one-time instantaneous legal act of God in which God thinks of our sins as forgiven. I'm good there. That's like, even right there, if the definition stopped, I'd be like, yes, forgiven. I'm excited about forgiveness. But guess what? There's more. There's more. So your sins are forgiven. And guess what? In Christ, righteousness belongs to us. Sins forgiven, yes. Christ's righteousness belongs to you, double yes. And then declaring us to be righteous in his sight. Whew. That's good stuff. So at the moment of conversion, we are justified. We are sanctified. And notice this is an act of God. We did not earn this. Again, at conversion, we are sanctified and we are justified. But it's also important for us to remember and marvel in the idea or the biblical truth that at conversion, we are also new creatures. We are new creatures. At conversion, we become new creatures. And this is what 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. If you've had a rotten past like me and have done every son or sin underneath the sun, you are so grateful for this. You have a new being. You are different. You are born again. You have a new outlook on life. Let me read the rest of the definition here, uh, or the rest of the verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Yes. Behold, new things have come. When we become new creatures, there is a moral change that occurred in our life. There was a definitive break from the ruling power and love of sin. Remember those songs, the chains were broken? Yes, there was a definitive break in sin at conversion because we are new creatures. And we see this taught in a few chapters earlier in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says this, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 6, verse 14, For sin shall not master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And as you know, we still have tension with sin, but there is a break. We have tension now because our new nature is encased in our humanness. But it's also important to know as new creatures, transformation begins. The process of becoming more and more like Jesus starts. And if you have kids, a lot of them now love like the superheroes, I think one year, a couple years ago, we had the superhero um, harvest fest. They were dressing up like their hero. Guess what? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are beginning to be transformed into heroes far greater than this world could imagine. God is at work helping us be more and more like his son, Jesus. Is that great news? 
So at conversion, this transformation begins, and we see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Being transformed, an ongoing process into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord and the Spirit. So if we go back to our text, specifically in verse 11, when it says salvation is nearer to us when we first believed, Paul here specifically is not talking about our past and present salvation. He's not talking about what we just discussed, sanctification, justification, or the reality that we are new creatures. Rather, Paul must be referring to the future and final dimension of God's redemptive plan that we will experience. He is referring to the finalization, the consummation of Christ's work. And this is so good, where there'll be a permanent, permanent deliverance from sin and evil into the purity and holiness of heaven. Good stuff. Just when you think God could not do any more for sinners like us, there's more to come in the future. God is coming, Jesus is coming back, and the whole world will be radically different. The reign of evil and sin will be over. Are you excited about that? Okay, good, because I am. I'm definitely excited. And there's many things we could talk about this future salvation for a long time, and there's lots of books and theories that are written about it. But there are two specific things about what lies around the corner that really, really excite me. And I have a, an itch that they really, really excite you too. Number one is this. What I'm longing for most is to see Jesus face to face. Who's excited about that? To see Jesus face to face. I cannot wait to see him coming down from the clouds. Um, you've ever been in a car ride with your kids or with a loved one or just with about anyone and the weather is just aligned that day where there's a beam of sunlight just like coming through the clouds and it's just like unmistakable and you're like wow that is really cool. It's going to be like that when Jesus comes back, but so much greater. And I'm longing for that. And of course, your kid, and when you share this with your kids, like, ah, Jesus, when he comes back, it's, it's going to be like that. And they're like, but the whole world will know, right, Dad? How's that possible? I don't know, but it's going to happen, and it's going to be awesome. So in terms of future salvation, what am I really looking forward to? And what are you really looking forward to is the return of Christ. But also, if you're like me, I'm looking forward to that new body. You're not? I am. I am, definitely. Um, I'm looking for the new body, specifically the redemption of our bodies, where we will no longer be plagued by sin. You know that tension, you know, when you're doing the things you don't want to do, and you do them anyways, the Romans 7, you know that? Looking forward for that being over with. Are you? Yes, up front is really excited about that. And this is the process that we know and um, have taught in theological books called glorification. And I can't wait for this. And let me just read, um, for those who don't know what glorification is, I'm going to read a definition. Again, if you know what glorification is, just celebrate this spiritual reality that lies around the corner for those who believe, okay? Glorification is the final step um, in the application of redemption, it will happen when Christ returns and raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and, re, and, reun, and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all who remain alive. 
thereby, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrected bodies like his own. Got to woo over here. It's okay. We're not a charismatic church, but it's okay to get excited about spiritual truth. It's okay. We'll allow it just for tonight, though. All right? But we see this. We see this glorification taught throughout Scripture. Specifically, we see this in 1 Corinthians. Don't tell Pastor Scott I'm using Corinthians so much. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Behold, I am telling you a mystery. We will not sleep, but we will be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. Yes. Amen. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Do not be amazed by this. I am. For this is, for a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out. Those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who've committed the bad deeds to the resurrection of judgment. Make sure you're on the resurrection of the good deeds. Uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body. One more. One other one? Why not? First John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And if you're a person in this room who is not following Christ, what could be more valuable than following Jesus? He is awesome. He is redempting. He redempted us for our sins, and he's going to give us a bright and glorious future. Amen? But third, again, staying in the text here, as it relates to time, notice specifically in verse 12. This verse says, The night is almost gone, and the day is almost near. What does that mean? What that means is this, is that in the present era, the reign of human depravity, spiritual unbelief, rebellion, sin, ungodliness, and sin, Satan's influence is coming to an end. It's coming to an end. Guess what's coming? Day is coming. The return of Christ is coming soon. The world system is coming to an end, and a drastically different reign is around the corner. Again, notice the sense of urgency in this text as a whole. In light of the error that we find ourselves in, in light of future glorification, in light of the reality that the world system is coming to a close, in light of the reality that Christ is coming back, do this. Wake up. Do not be sleepy. You with me? Okay. Paul is very practical here in this text, too. He's saying it's time for us as believers to look at our priorities. In light of these realities, that salvation is around the corner, that our glorification is around the corner, the imminent return of Christ is around the corner, what are our priorities? If you haven't been baptized, I can't think of a better time. The easiest, one of the easiest steps for a believer is to get baptized. You get to come in this place and publicly proclaim that Jesus has done something radical in your life. 
He has given you a new nature. And more importantly, for some of our young people who are wrestling with baptism, and it's so important, if you can't stand for Jesus in this place, how are you going to stand for him out there? Stand for him here, stand for him out there, stand for him everywhere because he is worthy of our lives. Remember, this text is calling for us to wake up. Live with a sense of urgency. If you're delaying baptism, be baptized. If you're um, delaying reconciling relationships with a friend, a spouse, a child, a coworker, don't put that off anymore. Remember, the Bible teaches us as far as it depends on you, live that peace with Everyone, do your part to reconcile. How about this? In light of the reality that we live in, it's time to share your faith. Oh, I don't want to. Yes, you do. Now is the time. Don't be sleepy. Um, I know all of you in this class have great fellowship groups on Sunday morning, and I'm sure they're great. But I got some news for you. Mine's the best. Because I have some really awesome people in there. And some of you who've made it out of my class, you're still really cool, but you used to be cooler when you're back in the... No, just kidding. (laughs) But one of the reasons I really love about that class, and if you're interested in this class, it's called Growing in Christ. It's in room 186 at 915 on Sundays. But in this class, there is a sense of urgency that the people who attend Growing in Christ have with sharing the gospel. They're aware of the times that we live in and the urgency to share Christ. We have one um, particular person in our fellowship group. Um, They were flying out to the New England area, and our class were like, really? Flying out to New England? We're really excited about that. But do you know that you will be sitting probably next to a lost person? Oh, yeah, I know. Can you pray that God would present opportunities to share the gospel? You betcha. We'll be praying. And guess what? This person came back, and guess what happened? Share the gospel with other people. There's a sense of urgency in the times that we live in. Tell other people about Jesus. Now is the time. And if you've never shared Christ with someone on an airplane, it's a blast. You have a captive audience. You can only go to the bathroom so many times. There's no dividing wall. One time we were on our way, when Heather and I first got married, to overseas. We were going to the Europe area for our honeymoon. And this poor sap... He was sitting next to me, and I was already leaning in that first half hour, and he's like, is this guy going to stop talking about Jesus? I eventually laid off, but sharing the gospel on airplanes, at church, everywhere you go, there should be a sense of urgency to that. Let me give you one more example of why uh, my fellowship group rocks, is that we have another guy in our fellowship group who was reluctant to sharing the gospel, but he understands, again, the urgency of the times that we live in. Him and his wife set up this like little oasis in front of their house with two nice little relaxing chairs. And they sit out in those chairs kind of during the times when people walk their dogs, you know, like early morning, late afternoon, in hopes that they will encounter a neighbor and hopes that they get to share the gospel with them. They understand the urgency of the times that we live in. Isn't that good stuff? Also, if you are not ministering to your kids, to your wife, and you've been delaying spiritual conversation with other people around you, and that delay has turned into days and weeks and months, you are no longer delaying, you're procrastinating. Stop procrastinating. Have those conversations about Jesus with your family, your friends, your spouse. Have them now. Also, 
there are so many orphans in the community that we live in. And if you're unaware of this, um, now is foster, or this month specifically, is Foster Awareness Month. Um, and the Bible, as you know, in James chapter 1, verse 27, tells us undefiled religion is to care for orphans and widows. So if you've been delaying perhaps God calling, God's calling on your life to be a part of caring for an orphan, you can do that. You can talk to me after the services. That doesn't mean you have to take a kid in your home like right now, but maybe you can watch a kid for a weekend. Maybe you can mentor a lost child and tell them about Jesus. Now is the time if God's put it upon your heart. But back to our text here. In light of time, in light of our future salvation, what should we do? The text tells us, live for Christ. The next question is how? How do I live for Christ? Notice it says in verse 11, do this, but do what? Specifically, verse 12 tells us what to do. It says, put off the old. Look at the verse in verse 12. It says, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. In light of time, we are to lay aside sinful practices. The author of Hebrews says something very similar in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. This is what the author of Hebrews says. Let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Jesus is coming soon. Glorification is around the corner. Now is the time to run. Get rid of the sins that slow you down so you can run with endurance for Christ. But also so important within this word, lay aside, aside. Some people or some translation use the word rid there. Rid yourself of the deeds of darkness. But embedded within this word rid are two other spiritual terms. And it's called renounce and repent. So when you think about ridding yourself of the deeds of darkness, think of renouncing, repenting from sinful practices. Get rid of them. And for some, renouncing sins that are a little bit closer to the heart or renouncing sins that may not seem all that bad can be challenging. Sins like a lack of contentment, pridefulness, bitterness, having a lack of self-control, gossiping, too much gaming, video gaming, or an argumentative spirit. Um, if we're going to renounce a sin, this is what it means. It means that we are agreeing with God that a specific thought, feeling, or action is wrong. But there are times, if we are honest, that we're not ready to say that certain thoughts, feelings, or actions are wrong. We're locked in. We feel justified at times on hanging on to godless feelings or desires. For example, someone might feel justified in withholding forgiveness from a person because they feel like that person doesn't deserve to be forgiven. None of us have ever done that. But you know people have, not you, only other people. In those moments, what must come to mind to our conscience is what the scriptures say. Remember what the words of Christ say. Matthew chapter 6, verse 
14 and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Another example of perhaps a sinful practice that is a little bit closer to the heart is not feeling content. A lot of people that I talk to just say, I'm just not satisfied. I'm just not content. Look at my circumstance. How could I possibly be content? In those moments, we must remember that God has given us the most important things, the eternal things. He's given us salvation, a new heart, sanctification, justification, adoption into his forever family. Lord, help me in those moments to be more content in you. Remember, our light and momentary afflictions are nothing compared to the glories of heaven. So if we're going to renounce a sin, it means you are agreeing with God that a specific sin is wrong. But it also involves not desiring to do that specific sin anymore. But God doesn't leave us alone in this. Remember, in growing in Christ's likeness, by putting on Christ, God gives us his word to help us. He gives us the church to help us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to help us. There is great hope in knowing this, amen? But also, if you look specifically in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 and 24, um, this is what Paul says in Ephesians as well. In reference to your former way of life, You are to rid yourselves, there's that word again, rid. Rid yourselves of the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of this this sea. 23 is very important. Um, As Tom Sheehan reminded me lately, 23 is very important. And that you are able to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Notice Paul is giving in Ephesians the same counsel that he's giving here in Romans chapter 13. Put off the old, rid yourself of sinful practices, put on the new. But as you're doing that, as it says in verse 23, he says this, renew the spirit of your mind. Beg God to change your heart so that you will change your behavior. God changes hearts. And the result of changed hearts is what? Changed behavior. But back to our verse here. Notice it says, lay aside deeds of darkness. And that, like we said earlier, involves renouncing and repenting, turning away from sin. But also it says, look very closely here, that it says, Put on the armor of light. Take off the dark clothes. And I really like the imagery here because when I read, I like to see images in my brain. That's where I really like the Gospels. If you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do you actually see Jesus in your head? I do, and I think that's awesome. I love the fact that the Gospels are written in narrative form. But specifically here, we see some imagery lay aside the deeds, put off those clothes of deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Interesting note here, um, this language of putting on new clothes was used by ancient rabbis. Um, Ancient rabbis taught that worshipers should aim to put on the Shekinah glory 
of God when worshiping God. They desired to reflect the bright light of God when they worshiped. And for those who don't know what the Shekinah glory is, it's an extra biblical word used to describe the divine radiance, glory, or presence of God in the midst of his people. So we see over and over again when the presence of God shows up in the Old Testament, it is radiant. It is distinctive. It is bright. So when we are worshiping God, ancient rabbi said, put on the bright light of Christ, of God. Be distinctive. We also see in scriptures that who was radiant light? Jesus was radiant light. Put on the light of Christ. And we see that very clearly in Matthew chapter 17. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? When Jesus went out the, up the mount, what happened? His face shined like the sun. Um, you ever look up at the sun? It's so bright you can't even bear it. So yet we see here in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is bright, then they can't even bear it. What happens? They fall to the ground. Pretty cool stuff. So we see in other verses too that Jesus is light. John chapter 1 verse 9, the true light. Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone and, uh, and, what, and Jesus is coming into the world. Um, specifically, also we see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, who else is supposed to be light? We are supposed to be light. So as we grow in laying aside the deeds of darkness and we're putting on light, we're putting on Jesus, and in putting on Jesus, we're drastically different. You should stand out in a lost world. If someone ever calls you a Bible thumper, say, thank you. Not, and hopefully they mean that by calling you a a Bible thumper, that you're not being obnoxious or anything like that, but you're loving other people. You're kind, you're gracious. You're willing to be bold to share the gospel with other people. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So to put on light, to put on the armor of light, is to put on faith, is to put on righteousness, to know the word of God and to think like Jesus, to care like Jesus, and to act like Jesus. And brothers and sisters, that might sound like a lot, but we should be very motivated to do this. Amen? Amen. Um, there are some things in life that really motivate me. Um, for example, I surf, and I've been surfing for a long time. But if my kids want to go surfing and the waves are really good, I can run on an hour of sleep and at 6 o'clock, I'm up. I'm motivated. I enjoy waking up, seeing my kids on waves, seeing their smiling faces. It's just a blast. But if I'm motivated, that motivated to go surfing and enjoy recreation with my kids, how much more motivated should I be to serve the Savior that died for me? So we should be motivated to do these things. Agreed? more so than earthly pleasures. But let's go to our, back to our text here. It says, um, what are these, specifically the text notice deeds of darkness, but what are these deeds of darkness? Well, we have some examples that are given here in the second half of verse 13. It says, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Notice how the verse says, behave properly. It does not say behave perfectly. We are pursuing Christian obedience, 
But we are sure grateful that Jesus lived the perfect life on our behalf. What we're looking for in Christian obedience is that our regenerated inner man aligns with our outer man, with what we are doing. But again, a quick observation on all these different deeds of darkness. Look at them here. There's a common thread that connects a few of them. Notice a a few of them here. Um, Carousing. What connects these things? Carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity. There's a common thread here. Do you see it? The common thread is that these deeds include a lack of self-control. Do you see that? If you're carousing, what is that? Out of control partying. What is drunkenness? Out of control drinking. What is sexual promiscuity? It is out of control sexual activity. But it's important to know that this word here, promiscuity, if you really translate it and break it down, it means going to bed. And there are many people in American culture who are tangibly not going to bed per se, with a person who is not their spouse, but instead they are going to bed with another person via electronic device. Looking at explicit images on a screen, this behavior is out of control behavior. It's dark behavior. Get rid of it. Be radical with getting rid of that darkness. Put on software on your computers, things like Covenant Eyes. Get an accountability partner. A side note, too, if um, you have young people that you minister to, nieces, nephews, grandkids, you are well aware that chivalry and all that is gone. That sexual activity is a slightly more formal now for our youth than exchanging numbers. It just rampant. It happens. And if you don't know that, know that. So when you're ministering to young people, you can prepare them for temptation that lies around the corner, for things that are socially acceptable in a fallen world. But as you consider these deeds of darkness that Paul is talking about here, you might say, well, that's not me. And you're right, it might not be you. But I think it's a good idea for all of us to ask certain questions. Are there areas of my life where I lack self-control? Does my temperament get out of control at times? Does my anger get out of control? When does that happen? How about my tongue? Does my tongue get too far ahead of me sometimes, leading to destructing relationships? Is my tongue out of control? How about your appetite for food? I know many people and I, my last name's Caliendo, so I'm allowed to say this, um, which is Italian for those who don't know. Um, a lot of people, food just has a stranglehold on their life. And because food has a stranglehold on their life, it prevents them from doing things that God has called them to do, whether it's in the mission field and ministry, caring for kids or other things. Are your pursuit for pleasures out of control? Are your video game habits out of control? Remember, if you are a genuine believer, Your position before God is not in jeopardy when you sin. But Paul is telling us, in light of the times that we live in, it is time to wake up. God, Jesus is coming back soon. Put off these things. Don't be out of control. Have a hold of resolve to be like the one you love. 
I love that last part. All of us should have a holy resolve to be like the one that we love. We love Christ. Do I have resolve to follow him? But also notice the next word is strife. And you might just dismiss strife. You're like, well, that's not me again. Not my problem. But strife, um, if you look, you know, do more analysis on this word strife, it refers to persistent contention. Am I a contentious person? Bickering, petty disagreements. It reflects a spirit of antagonistic competitiveness that fights to have its own way. Again, in light of the times we live on, live in, put off strife and put on Jesus. Let's jump into verse 14 as we close. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how it says the Lord, the sovereign one, the awesome one, the Righteous one, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to his lust. Practically speaking, putting on Christ means meditating on Christ's greatness and emulating him throughout our days. It means gazing at the glory of Christ. Remember, in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus left heaven. Angels came to earth as a baby, very vulnerable, was spat upon, mocked mocked at, slapped, insulted, had his clothes ripped off his back. And remember when he was on the cross, he was on there for six hours. Six hours of agonizing torment. That is the persistent love of Christ towards his father and towards his people. So as I'm thinking about what it means to put on Christ, it means putting on being like him, to think like him, to gaze at his awesomeness throughout the day and trying to emulate him in all situations, right? It means to pray like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to act like Jesus. And brothers and sisters, what a privilege we have to do this. We have the privilege to act like the one who saved us. And remember, the Holy Spirit, as I said earlier, is working through us to help achieve this. He has given us his word in the church so we can emulate our hero, Christ Jesus. Again, this is good stuff. Lastly, in verse 14, it says, Paul says, make no provision for the flesh. A couple more thoughts and then we'll pray. Um, Make no provision for the flesh. Um, As many of us in this room know that many tragic sins do not just randomly happen. Many tragic sins are a culmination of many unwise and sinful decisions. For example, many affairs do not instantly happen. They start with a look, then with an informal touch, then an orchestrated meeting in the hallway, then a planned lunch, then a horrible ending. The same thing with things like alcohol, pornography. They start small, but we don't get rid of them and the steam begins to grow. So what Paul is telling us, it says, make no provision for the flesh. What he's saying is this, make, do not make sin a forethought. Do not make plans that can lead to sin. 
Do not let lustful desires linger in your minds. The longer we permit sinful thoughts and feelings, the more provision we make for the flesh and increase the likelihood of bringing such thoughts to fruition. Do not make provisions for the flesh. Rather, walk in the Spirit. Yield to the Word. Yield to the will of God. So in conclusions, brothers and sisters, I love you. We live in an awesome time where we get to live for Jesus. What a privilege that we get to grow in Christ-likeness day by day. So let's be clothed with Christ. Let's put on light. Let's put on Christ and throw away the temptations of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, in light of the present time, let's strive to live for Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this reminder in Romans chapter 13. Lord, thank you for reminding us of the time that we live in and that you've given us the distinctive opportunity to put on Christ. Lord, and if we are sleepy, help us to wake up. Help us not to love sin too much, Lord. Help us to renounce it and to repent from it. Help us to be serious about the lingering sins that are on our hearts, Lord. And help us to be eager and excited about putting on Jesus. We love you, Lord. Help us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.